Thanks so much for being with us today. If you've been paying attention to the news, you likely know that the SNC-Lavalin story has continued to dominate the headlines. And a lot of people questioning, well, many of the things being said about this. This past week, we saw more testimony to the Justice Committee. And we're going to talk more about who people are believing coming up in the program a bit later on. But right now, we are joined by the Conservative MP for Carleton. Pierre Polyevra joins me on the line now. Uh, Pierre, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you. Uh, You have written about this uh, as well and talked about this uh, case. And let's start with the the number of jobs, because that seems to be one of the issues where this number is put out for people. Uh, We're being told time and time again by the prime minister, by people backing the prime minister, that there are 9,000 jobs up for grabs. Uh, We also hear that there's no evidence of this. There's nothing to actually back this up. You you touch on this in the piece you've written. Uh, Where do we get this idea or this number on jobs? How do we know exactly what jobs, if any, are, are at stake because of this? Well, we know that the, jo- the 9,000 jobs are not at stake. And, and I'll give you some hard evidence uh, of that fact. Uh, first of all, the Prime Minister's claim is based on basically two things. One, he told Jody Wilson-Raybould that if the SNC-Lavalin was prosecuted, that it would move its headquarters out of Montreal and take thousands of jobs with it. Well, that is impossible because SNC-Lavalin has signed an agreement with the Quebec Pension Plan uh, in order to get a $1.5 billion loan that it would keep the headquarters in Montreal until the year 2024, six years from now. Furthermore, the the company has just signed a 20-year lease with its headquarters in Montreal and is spending millions of dollars renovating that headquarters to accommodate its 2,000 employees there. So obviously it's not possible that the headquarters would leave. The second claim is that if the company is convicted of serious offenses, it will automatically be barred from getting federal contracts. That too is false. The government is already working on an exemption that would allow the Public Works Department to continue to to give contracts to SNC-Lavalin even if it is convicted. So that, too, is a false claim. Finally, I just point out some uh, hard physical evidence. Uh, SNC-Lavalin is working on the five biggest construction projects in Canada right now, worth a combined $52 billion. As you can imagine, when you close your eyes and envision a construction project, the workers need to be on site. They need to be physically there. So you cannot build Ottawa's transit project while you're in Beijing or in London or anywhere else. You have to physically be working in Canada. So, again, it would be physically impossible for SNC to move those jobs out of Canada. I would just make one final point. The company would gain no advantage by moving the jobs out of the country. It would still be prosecuted here in Canada, and the the damage of conviction to its reputation uh, would remain just as bad regardless of where it it locates its head head office uh, and its employees. In other words, this whole jobs argument is a a, a gigantic pile of BS designed to distract from the fact that the real reason Trudeau is protecting SNC-Lavalin is to back up a liberal-length corporation with very powerful political, political players tied to it. 
Uh, back up a little bit if you can. So being because one of the issues too, when you talk about that they wouldn't be banned from government projects, that's been one of the arguments or one of the the issues that's been raised time and time again in this. In that, why the whole uh, deferred prosecution was brought in uh, on that omnibus bill, why the government brought it in, was because they would be banned from projects. Nonsense. Uh, the the SNC was already banned back in 2015 after the original fraud and bribery charges were laid. But the government stepped up in December of that year and provided them an exemption. Uh, and as a result, SNC is continuing to build on federal work. Now, the government says, well, if they're convicted, they'll be banned again. Yes, and it's already been revealed that the public procurement minister is working on building yet another exemption for SNC-Lavalin. So they will be exempted even if convicted. So this has nothing to do with allowing the company to build, to, to bid, continue to bid on federal government contracts. The jobs argument is a complete distraction. It's designed to turn our eyes away from the fact that the only reason Trudeau is protecting this company is because it is a liberal-linked corporation that, it, that gave $100,000 in illegal money to the Liberal Party, which has very powerful lobbyists and, and, and uh, incredible personal links to powerful players in Ottawa. That is it. It is crony capitalism and nothing more. Uh, which uh, some have also uh, brought up saying uh, that we likely would not be having this same conversation or anything close to it if we were talking about a company in the exact same position uh, that was based out of Alberta or BC. Well, we, I, you know, at the end of the day, for me, we need to respect all jobs, but this is not about jobs. It's not about jobs in Quebec. It's not about jobs anywhere in Canada. It's about protecting powerful executives powerful shareholders who have enormous reputational and financial interests in blocking this trial from going ahead. Uh, and it is, uh, it's crony capitalism. It's the worst kind of corruption in government, uh, and uh, we're going to continue to expose it. Uh, does it not seem, though, that here's a company with a history of corruption, with a history of doing this type of, of bad business, uh, that Canadian lawmakers are going out of their way to, to make these exemptions, to say, go ahead, do whatever you want, we're still going to make sure uh, that you're okay? This is not exactly a company that made a, a tiny lapse of judgment on one occasion and is looking for some leniency. Uh, they've already had corruption scandals in Canada with uh, construction projects uh, that they, uh, uh, that, for which members of the SNC-Lavalin were convicted of uh, various uh, offences uh, that, that occurred in Montreal. Uh, the charges with respect to Libya are very serious. Do not make any mistake. Some people are saying, oh, this is just how business is done in the third world. Uh-uh. What they are alleged to have done is bribe Omar Gaddafi, provide his son with hookers, and defraud Libyan public organizations of over $130 million. You can imagine the moral depravity that would have to be involved in robbing some of the, allegedly robbing some of the poorest people on earth in order to pad the pocketbooks of a wealthy Western corporation. Um, if true, these allegations are very serious with real human costs and they will need to be punished.
Uh, and that seems to, w- to be what's being lost in this. And you mentioned this as well. I mean, some of the allegations, and, and you touched on this, they, I mean, one of them being uh, like so much money spent on prostitutes for Gaddafi's son. This is not something I would think that most Canadians would be okay with. No, and let's remember, Mohar Gaddafi was a vicious and cruel dictator with a track record of torturing uh, his own citizens, uh, and uh, slaughtering his political enemies, um, you know, assisting him in any way, remain in power or, or enrich himself uh, is uh, by itself morally appalling. And, and if the company did do that, and further, if it did rob these public agencies of uh, over $100 million, it literally would have been taking money from, from the poorest people on earth. It's against the law. It needs to be prosecuted in a court of law, and that is precisely why the director of public prosecutions and the attorney general decided to proceed with the case against the protests of Justin Trudeau. So what do you think is the bigger issue here? Is it the allegations against this Canadian-based, this Quebec-based company, or is it the allegation of interference and the testimony of Jody Wilson-Raybould of the interference that she faced in this case? I think it's the latter because, um, you know, we have a, a justice system that can combat corruption. And I believe that SNC will face true justice if the matter, if Trudeau does not block it from going to court. However, if Trudeau succeeds in politicizing our prosecutorial and judicial branch, then uh, companies like this will feel a sense of impunity in going forth and breaking the law uh, because they know that they can hire powerful lobbyists and donate to the right politicians in order to get out of the, to get out of jail uh, when, when they're, when they're caught. Uh, And we really have to decide whether we have one justice system for the people and another for the powerful, whether we have in Canada, a new golden rule where those with the gold make the rules. I believe we don't, And we have to stop Justin Trudeau from trying to make it so. But like you said, too, even if they are prosecuted, there are still the plans underway. There's still this move to still provide exemptions and to still let the company where it doesn't seem like even if they are prosecuted, there would be huge repercussions. Because, again, like you mentioned, they they, they, it's not as though they have a clean history. Uh, They've been convicted of these things in the past and they're still fine. And, and then you raise a good question, like, why is it that possible that, that a company can, can repeatedly engage in uh, corrupt, uh, corrupt practices uh, and uh, avoid um, permanent uh, repercussions for it? And we have to think more carefully about whether or not we are punishing white collar and corporate crime with enough severity. Uh, you, um, the leader of your party, Andrew Scheer, uh, quickly after uh, things started to unfold with this, called for the resignation of the prime minister. Uh, do you think he was too quick in calling for that? No, not at all. I think uh, Justin Trudeau must resign. Uh, he, you know, there are two different defenses for Trudeau's conduct. One is that he's um, embarrassingly ignorant. And the other is that he's dishonest. Either way, he shouldn't be our prime minister. Let me give you an example of that. Jody Wilson-Raybould testifies that on September 17th, she says, I looked him in the eye 
and I told him to stop. He goes out when this whole scandal breaks and says, you know, she never once told me that I was doing anything wrong. I can't understand. Well, she did tell him. She told him on September the 17th, months before his denial. So did he just forget that when he stood in front of 37 million Canadians and told them the opposite? Or was he lying bold-faced? Either way, either he is so forgetful and so blissfully ignorant that he didn't realize that she was pushing him back, or he was lying to us all. In which of those cases would you want such a man as your prime minister? All right. We're going to have to leave it there. We are right out of time. Uh, Pierre Polyevra, though, I really appreciate uh, you taking some time uh, to talk with us this morning. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Well, BC's legal aid lawyers are planning to vote on strike action, and this is all to back funding increased demands for the lawyers in this particular group in BC. Joining us on the line is Richard Fowler. He is the director of the Association of Legal Aid Lawyers. Richard Fowler, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Good morning. Where do things stand right now as far as funding for legal aid lawyers and some of the concerns? Well, the primary concern is that there has not been enough money invested in legal aid for many, many years, decades, basically. And uh, British Columbia is falling well behind uh, other provinces in terms of the areas of law covered by legal aid and in terms of the monies that are paid to lawyers to do this difficult work. Uh, 514 members, is that correct? And that's how many uh, legal aid lawyers or members of this group there are in B.C.? Well, I'm happy to say it's now close to 550. Okay. Because I think maybe there's this mis, uh, misperception of legal aid lawyers in that people uh, think that uh, we're talking about lawyers who are, are involved with other firms and do this work on the side or it's uh, lumped in with some kind of pro bono work. But that's not exactly how it works. No, it's not. Um, many, many lawyers do legal aid uh, work for in criminal cases. It used to be the case they did in family law and child apprehension law as well, but those have been cut back by the government over the last 20 years. But uh, many um, lawyers do this work uh, entirely, be, partly because they um, it's a kind of client group that they want to help. So they're doing it because of the nature of the work that is so important to the community. And so the difference then being that a legal aid lawyer uh, technically, or is it oversimplifying it to say that a legal aid lawyer is paid by the government rather than by the client? Well, it's not oversimplifying it. The money is that the government puts into legal aid goes to the Legal Services Society, which is intended to be an independent um, organization with its own board of governors that determines how the money is dispersed to lawyers and for what areas of law and for what clients qualify. The problem is over the last 25 years, their budget has been um, effectively cut every year as a result of uh, the cost of living raises. And looking at some of the numbers that I was given about this, it says that in real terms, it's about a 60% decrease in per capita spending. If we go back to, you mentioned 1992 levels, uh, that seems like a huge amount, uh, a huge decrease. Well, it it is. And uh, given the monies that is collected in PST, which is the tax on legal fees that everybody who goes to uh, a private lawyer pays 7% provincial sales tax, considering the government collects over $200 million. It's uh, it's absurd that not more money is put into legal aid. 
I mean, we're talking about helping the most disadvantaged people in our province, people with uh, criminal offenses, often as a result of addictions, mental health problems. We're talking about families that are going through crisis, children that have been apprehended. Um, you know, we're not talking about glamorous areas of the law here. We're talking about a severe social need. And what do you see? Are, are you able to give an example, uh, as you mentioned, some of the, the, the people who perhaps or people that would need uh, legal help the most? How are they being uh, impacted by by this? Well, let's take an example of a, uh, a single mother, for example, who, for one reason or another, it's often extremely complicated. The Ministry of Children has got involved and their child has been apprehended uh, for a number of different reasons. The, a lawyer paid for by the government will appear on behalf of the Ministry of Children uh, in court. Uh, the mother um, will not have a lawyer unless the government lawyer is seeking to have the child apprehended permanently. The mother is not entitled to a lawyer. I mean, from my point of view, that just looks awful. The government is paying for a lawyer to um, for the Ministry of Children, and the single mother is not able to get uh, a lawyer. And we're talking about a province where, as we all know, from numerous reports, many, many uh, Indigenous children are taken into care, for example. And the numbers as well. So, and this was put out by uh, the Association of Legal Aid Lawyers, saying that a one-person household with an income, if the income is more than fifteen hundred eighty dollars a month, which is not a lot of money, particularly if you're living in Metro Vancouver, that that household, that could be a single-person household, is not eligible for a legal aid lawyer. Uh, that's correct. In criminal cases, that is the cutoff. Uh, it's slightly higher than that in uh, child apprehension cases, but it's still. Uh, extremely low and part of our campaign is that those numbers have to be increased there's a real need uh, in this province for people to have lawyers and it's money well spent because it's been shown time and time again that when people have the ability to consult with counsel and counsel to appear on their behalf in court uh, disputes are resolved quicker that are resolved more effectively uh, we don't have situations, for example, where people are failing to appear to court and then there have to be warrants issued. The police then get involved and the cost of doing that is enormous. Whereas when somebody has a lawyer, the lawyer can make an appearance for them. The lawyer can follow up with the client and get them to court on time and those kinds of things. So it's money extremely well spent. Uh, it seems like that's only one part of the issue, though, that if that was changed, uh, that people could access uh, legal aid lawyers. That's one part of it. But there's still the issue of the funding for the lawyers themselves. Absolutely. We've seen one pay raise uh, since 1992. Uh, the hourly rate in 1992 that was paid was $80 an hour. It's now increased uh, effectively to an average hourly rate of about $88 an hour. Um, you cannot run a, a law practice on $88 an hour. And we have to understand that that's not money that the lawyer goes home with. That is money that has to go towards overhead, including staff, um, paying our law society fees, which are nearly $4,500 a year. And uh, the other way of looking at it is prosecutor salaries, who are the other essential part of the justice system, apart from judges, they've seen an increase in their uh, compensation of 116% over the same time period, whereas we've effectively seen a, over a 60% decrease. Uh, so there, if there is no change to this, uh, there's going to be a vote, is there, on, on March 13th? The voting actually will start tomorrow, uh, March the 11th, I think. I hope it's tomorrow. Um, and 
Uh, it will go till six o'clock on March the 13th, yes. And all of our members uh, will vote on uh, job action, which will involve a withdrawal of services. And of course, we see this as, you know, the last, uh, it's not something we want to do, but because of so many reports recommending an increase in funding, even including the McLaren report that was commissioned recently, recommended an increase in funding and still the government can't or won't put money into legal aid. So, you know, this is an action of last resort because we're well aware it's going to affect the very people that we um, work very hard to represent. What happens then if there is a withdrawal of services? What happens even with cases that are currently in the system? Well, there's different steps in our job action, one of which is a withdrawal of duty council services. So those services whereby lawyers appear in court on a daily basis and at night and on weekends to help people that have been arrested, for example, those services will be withdrawn. In the middle of uh, April, it's our intention to withdraw from existing cases, um, that is, cases that are already in the system, um, if ethically we can do that. We have complicated rules of ethics, um, and lawyers, all lawyers, on a case-by-case basis will have to take those into account and make an application to withdraw from existing cases. So that's the plan. It's uh, complicated. It's not unlike the kind of decisions doctors have to make when they go on strike. Um, But as we know, that doesn't happen very often because doctors have a structure that negotiates their salary on an ongoing basis. We don't. Uh, So how confident are you there will be any movement uh, from this government uh, before, uh, well, the vote starts tomorrow, uh, before, but to resolve this, that it doesn't get to that point? Well, it's difficult to say because, of course, we have many dec- uh, many years, uh, well, it is decades now, of uh, non-funding for legal aid. I'm hoping that we have the government's attention and we're hoping very much that they appreciate the depth of the problem and the consequences of so many years of underfunding and that we can have fruitful discussions over the next days and that the money can be found. The reality is the money is there. If you just look at the provincial sales tax. So somebody who goes to a lawyer who can afford to pay a lawyer or a company in British Columbia or hires a lawyer pays 7% provincial sales tax on those fees. And that was always intended. The government, various governments have said that wasn't the case. But if you read the uh, Hansard from when the provincial sales tax was brought in, it was always intended that that would fund legal aid. There is more than enough money for British Columbia to have a legal aid system that is beneficial to everybody in British Columbia and that we can be proud of as a province. All right. Well, we will be watching what happens with the vote and what happens next with this. We'll have to leave it there. Richard Fowler, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you for having me. I'm not sure you're aware of this, but there is places in B.C. where we don't do daylight saving time, and those are Fort Nelson, Chetwin, Tumbler Ridge, Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, almost the entire northeast corner of the province, and Creston. All right, that was just one call to the buzz line. There have been many about the time change. Twice a year, when the clocks change, uh, we get into this debate. The topic is raised. Why do we do this? Is there enough support to perhaps pick one and just stay there year-round? Well, Linda Larson joins me now, the MLA for Boundary Similkamine. Linda, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I know you have some about uh, the time, the clocks changing and what we might do uh, going forward with this. 
Well, the bill that I introduced this past week uh, at the legislature actually is called the Uniform Pacific Time Zone Act, um, and it's geared to staying on Pacific Daylight uh, savings time, and it's to line up with the same types of bills that are going through in the United States in our same time zone, uh, California and Oregon and Washington. And what kind of response have you had then to this idea that we, we dedicate it or we end the idea of daylight saving time? Well, the, the idea is we're not ending daylight savings time. We're keeping it permanently. All right. So we're, at, we're ending, um, in essence, our original Pacific Standard Time. So the time that we have during the winter, that's the one we are ending. The one we have just leapt into uh, is the one that uh, we would keep all year round. All right. And we, we heard from the Premier on this this past week, too, because every time we change the clocks, there is this debate or there is this call uh, for uh, to look at this and to perhaps pick one. Uh, he had said we can't do it as a one-off. It needs to be done in, in with the whole region. Uh, we're seeing other states uh, that are looking at this as well. Um, as that caller to the buzz line pointed out, there are some parts of the province that don't uh, adhere to the time change. Uh, so what would the benefit be, do you think, if we did pick this time and just stuck with it? Well, the, the benefits, of course, are, are, have been, well, I was going to, should say the opposite. The things that are not good with switching your clocks, um, certainly there's been a lot of research on health issues. Uh, there's always a spike in accidents uh, just the days after we do the time switching, whether it's forward or back. The, the, the same uh, issues apply. There's a loss of productivity. In the United States, they calculated at $3 billion. Um, there's cost to industry. So if you are running shifts during the night, um, and as, as health authorities are and major mining corporations, etc., you've got hundreds of people at work. Now you've got an issue where there's a, a pay adjustment that has to be made. Um, and in this instance, I think BC can certainly be a leader. Um, it is one thing, as the Premier has stated, that, um, you know, to line up with everybody else, but as you just explained, the province itself does not line up with itself. Um, and I think we can be a leader regardless, but I certainly understand uh, the, you know, Premier's thinking in that it would need to line up the entire West Coast. Which makes sense in, in that we talk about how, how we are so connected with the West Coast and connected with our neighbours to the South. It would, it would seem a bit odd if people crossing the border uh, suddenly are dealing with a difference in time. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And that's what my bill actually says. Uh, there's a part of my bill that says that, um, um, that should the uh, United States below us, Washington, Oregon, and California, California go into this new Pacific Daylight time that would become the Pacific Standard Time, uh, that we should be set through our legislature to go with it. All right. And just so I'm clear, because, and I think you mentioned this earlier, so where we are now that we've just sprung forward, this would be the time that we would keep year-round under this bill? 
Yeah, and that's um, that's the general public's wish. So over the last couple of years, because this is the third time I've put this bill on the floor of the legislature, um, over the last couple of years, the general consensus has been that people prefer daylight savings time because we being in the northern hemisphere like to have lots of light when our weather is good. So in other words, when we're in our warmer time times of the year, people want that extra daylight. Uh, which is an interesting argument as well. And I get that it, it's that kind of extra light in the evening, but it doesn't actually change the amount of light we get. It just shifts when we're getting it. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. I always feel it's a bit odd when people say that. It's like we've, we've won the lottery and got it's like, no, it's still the same day. It's just uh, you might instead of, you know, 10 o'clock at night, it would be nine. It's not. It just it just shifts it around a little bit. It does, but I guess it's it's just the way we perceive it, uh, and um, and the activities that people do in the evenings uh, that dictates how they appreciate having that extra bit of light. Uh, you mentioned too the the impact people have on health and such, and we do see an increase in crashes on the Monday following the time change, which to me always seems a bit odd as well. In that, I, I, I guess there are just so many people that have a sleep schedule or that are so accustomed to having the exact amount of sleep every night. You would think with the number of shift workers and people who have wacky schedules, uh, the, the, losing an hour of sleep would be something that happens on a regular basis. You know, one would assume that, but from what I have read over the last couple of years, our bodies actually don't adjust. So, you know, your body still does its 24-hour cycle, and the fact that now you're asking it to do something at a different hour is one of the reasons that we seem to end up in this accident-prone type of uh, position. Um, And they do say if you lose sleep, you really never regain it. Uh, And I know for a fact as a mother and grandmother that children take a long time to adjust to this shift because you are literally taking their 24-hour body clock and making it shift. Uh, So what happens now as far as uh, this is a bill you've introduced? Where do you see see things going from here? So I'm a member, as you know, of the B.C. Liberal Party. Therefore, I am in opposition. My bill is called a private member's bill. And I can introduce it and read it a first time, and then it sits on what we call the order paper in the legislature. It, nothing will happen with it at all unless the current NDP government picks it up. Now, that's a rarity in B.C., as you may know. I can't remember when a private member's bill has been picked up by the uh, government and actioned on, but that is where it will sit. Um, I basically have just said to everybody, you know, if you really want this to go, which seems to be the general uh, thoughts out there, then you need to get hold of your MLAs and you need to let the Premier know that this is something that is important. All right. Well, we will leave it there because I'm sure a lot of people will do exactly that. Uh, But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. You are welcome. Have a great day. Well, if you've been following along with the SNC-Lavalin case, uh, you've likely listened to the testimony of Jody Wilson-Raybould, that of Gerald Butts. Uh, If you've been on Twitter, there is certainly no shortage of opinions and ideas on what we've heard in the case so far. So how do you break it all down and figure out exactly what is going on? Uh, My next guest is here to talk about that. Max Cameron is a political scientist at UBC. Uh, Max Cameron, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. 
Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how do you? Because to me, it's almost like watching a trial in that there are witnesses, there are people testifying, and uh, here we are trying to figure out uh, where is the truth. And there is room for multiple interpretations of, of the events. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the former attorney general uh, indicating that she came under a sustained campaign of pressure uh, on the side of the prime minister's office and insistence that uh, that really never happened, uh, that they were simply suggesting that the uh, attorney general look at other options. And, and uh, both those interpretations are, are plausible. Uh, I, I think that uh, probably the attorney general's version of events uh, uh, is, is more likely to, closer to the, to the truth, uh, but we may never know. To my mind, it shows us just how powerful the prime minister's office has become. It raises some very interesting questions about partisanship. Uh, and it shows how complicated it is for politicians to wear multiple hats. On the one hand, the attorney general is the top enforcer of the law. On the other hand, also a member of the cabinet and of the government. And so these are very complicated roles. And there has been talk uh, of separating those roles and something that's being looked at. Um, when you say, though, that you're, you're more likely to believe Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony is the truth, how come? Uh, first of all, she was an incredibly uh, impressive uh, witness in the committee hearings and the story that she told uh, just uh, uh, rang true. Uh, it, it, um, it, it made sense of, of her actions uh, and uh, it, the story seemed entirely credible. Um, it's, uh, it's easy to see that the government uh, cares about uh, preserving jobs uh, and uh, it's uh, easy to imagine uh, why the Prime Minister um, would be concerned about uh, the treatment of SNC Lavalin. Um, the, uh, it's also easy to understand how, uh, as the Attorney General, she might very well feel that uh, for a Prime Minister uh, to be sending insistent messages um, that he was uh, wanting her to look at alternatives to proceeding with a, a prosecution uh, was more than uh, just you know, simply asking her to keep an open mind. Uh, I, I think one of the things that really strikes me, I mean, I, you know this, uh, um, if ever you move up in an organization, um, that uh, when somebody in a position of power says to somebody lower than them on the hierarchy, and of course no one is more powerful than the prime minister in the prime minister's office, um, maybe you should think about doing something else. Um, that doesn't come across as a suggestion. That feels much more like an order. Uh, and uh, and I suspect that uh, that's probably what was indeed happening in this case. And because she didn't follow that, uh, what was told uh, later on, as you said, was a suggestion. But I, I think you're absolutely right. When that comes from your boss, it's it's not a suggestion. We rarely get suggestions from our bosses. And when she didn't, uh, she was shuffled out of that position. And I think that's really the most extraordinary thing and, and really the most disturbing thing. If, she, if indeed she was removed from her uh, position because of this, then it's really political interference uh, of the highest order, very, very concerning. Butts' testimony, Gerald Butts from the Prime Minister's, uh, his, 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 his secretary, his uh, uh, testimony suggested, uh, and gave us really kind of an interesting inside view into how this happened. He was warned by Philippot uh, that uh, Wilson-Raybould would take this as political interference. Apparently she indicated in the phone call that she saw it that way. 
Um, she then refused to take um, Indigenous services, which was, which was the position that she was offered. Not surprisingly, again, I think that's something that the Prime Minister should have anticipated. You don't, you know, put one of your, you know, Indigenous uh, uh, leaders in a position of enforcing the Indian Act, uh, which is seen by Indigenous people across the country as a colonial uh, policy. Um, and and um, and then um, was extraordinarily surprised that she didn't accept the uh, the new cabinet post and uh, was advised by Butts who don't let uh, cabinet ministers uh, uh, refuse to be shuffled in a cabinet shuffle or you'll lose control over the cabinet. So you can sort of see the the various issues at work here: the efforts to maintain the power of the prime minister, the desire to have a, a regionally balanced uh, cabinet, but also, I mean. Uh, it really does look as if, uh, at, a, at the very least, real insensitivity to um, what they were hearing from the Attorney General. And also, it also points for me that th- there's two possibilities, perhaps, in that the, the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office uh, was so uh, not uh, well-versed when it comes to law that they didn't realize that it was wrong, or they're lying about it, and using that, what I think is a very tired excuse of, well, well, that person, she interpreted it differently than how I meant it. Yeah, I, that's right. And I think in, in some ways we're in a situation in which uh, old ways of doing politics are breaking down and new ways haven't yet established themselves. And I think that what Jody Wilson-Raybould represents in a way is a, is a different approach to politics. She's clearly less partisan. Uh, she's a lawyer and takes very seriously her role as attorney general. Um, the prime minister has offered, you know, fresh a fresh start, a new way of doing politics. But he's also uh, relying heavily on the uh, uh, power of the prime minister's office. Uh, and uh, and and clearly, um, if if the if the allegations of the attorney general uh, are, are correct, um, you know, he uh, I think is is um, prepared to to do. Uh, whatever he can to preserve, you know, jobs and and uh, and, and, and economic uh, investments in, in in Quebec. Um, so so we're really, I think, dealing with a kind of a, a clash between different visions of how politics should operate. And I think the fact that Jody Wilson-Raybould doesn't isn't sort of someone who's risen up through the Liberal Party. She doesn't have a lot of parliamentary experience. I mean, both of them are rookies in some sense, right? And we have a, 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 a prime minister who, of course, has parliamentary experience, but uh, is, is new to the role of prime minister, and attorney general is new, new to that role as well. Um, obviously, both should be relying heavily on their staff. I think I wonder about what's going on in terms of the civil service in Canada, that something like this should, should would, would happen. I think it does raise some questions about the kind of advice both the prime minister uh, and the attorney general were getting. Uh, and, and so it's going to be very interesting to see as we move forward whether those traditional ways of doing politics uh, just become uh, inexorable, you can't, you can't sort of overcome them, or whether we will begin to see these kinds of changes happening with people actually you know, being prepared to turn down a cabinet post, not to take something better, but just because on principle they don't believe that what they're being asked to do is right. Uh, exactly. And, and interesting when you mention that too, and that Jody Wilson-Raybould, yes, she is new to, the, uh, to, to being a cabinet minister to, to parliament. She's not new to the law, though, and knowing the law. 
Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's most impressive about her behavior and her testimony is this clear understanding uh, of her role as the, as the lawmaker. And again, this is the way that the separation of powers works in Canada. We don't have a presidential system where the different branches of government are entirely separated or, or there's an attempt to put them into something closer to watertight containers. In Canada, um, the branches of government in some sense are fused. Um, the executive is drawn out of the legislature, uh, and the attorney general's office is the representative of the crown, who is responsible for upholding the rule of law, but is also at the same time a member of the executive and a member of the legislature. So there's a sense in which somebody like our attorney general wears three hats, legislative, judicial, and executive. Uh, that's a, a kind of an extraordinary fusion in, in some sense, and so it makes it all the more important, if we're going to uphold the rule of law, that those who occupy those positions understand very clearly those, ro- those roles and patrol those borders. And I think this is where I would be most critical of Gerald Butts and, uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau. I think that uh, really uh, the, the matter was one of judicial discretion, and who decides what the margin of judicial discretion is, I think that should be in the hands of the Attorney General. And if the Attorney General is telling you, no, I've made a decision and I don't welcome this interference, uh, back off, right? That, that should be the lesson here for future Prime Ministers. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Max Cameron, thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Joining me on the line now is Lockhart McLean, who is the Director of Marine Operations with the Sea Shepherd Society. Uh, Lockhart, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad glad the uh, connection got through. We're up here in a remote part of BC this morning. Oh, very. Uh, even even better that we were able to connect with you. Thank you so much. Um, talk to me a little bit. Uh, the reason we uh, brought you on the show this morning is because of a new campaign uh, that's been put out by uh, Sea Shepherd and images that uh, many people will likely find disturbing, but that's the whole point when we talk about pollution, specifically plastic in the ocean. How did the campaign come about? Um, this is a campaign we've been doing in Brazil, actually. Um, it was a partnership with a, a design studio out of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Uh, it had a lot of traction uh, down there, and we decided to take it uh, to our North American um, you know, part of the organization as well. And for describe the images or the images that were chosen to be used in this. So we're, we're basically we're depicting marine wildlife um, suffocating, you know, with plastic bags. And, and some of the images we've used is a one is a hawksbill turtle uh, with a plastic bag over its head. Uh, another one is a uh, sea lion with a plastic bag over its head. And these are not real; they're uh, computer generated, but they do uh, they do seem very lifelike. And, and that's one of the, the issues too. So not really. People will look at these, and, and I don't. I think you can't look at something like this and not be a little bit horrified. Uh, do you think the fact that they're computer generated does that does that is it enough to, to say that this is generated? However, this is happening, and there are documented cases of, of things just like this happening in the wild. Well, we operate eight vessels um, all throughout the Americas, North and South America, and we see this kind of stuff all the time. Um, Not necessarily a plastic bag over the head, but definitely um, uh, gill nets, uh, ghost nets, long lines, all kinds of plastics um, ingested uh, in dead animals. Uh, One of our operations in in Mexico, um, we work in partnership with the Mexican government and retrieve uh, illegal long lines, and we find a lot of plastic ingested in some of the dead animals, as well as uh, animals dead by, by entanglement. Uh, so why use uh, computer-generated images when, when you could be using images of, of actual uh, damage in the environment? Yeah, this was chosen as a, just sort of as a uh, strong, strong um, 
uh, type of imagery, and uh, it, it just the traction it's gotten is a very simple, simple way to show that a plastic bag, which is the, the image that's been used, can cause so much harm. Uh, most of these are ingested by turtles who think they're jellyfish. And where is all the plastic coming from? Well, um, we still live in a culture with single-use plastic uh, every day. Uh, this is something that uh, we're strongly uh, hoping to change. Uh, it's great to see some municipalities and some communities starting to ban uh, single-use plastics. Some supermarkets are stopping uh, the use of it, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, but do we know specifically, because uh, even here in, in Metro Vancouver, there's uh, been a lot of talk when Starbucks came out and said that they were banning the straw, uh, that got a lot of traction in the news. Uh, but but then when you look into that and look as far as if you have a straw in Vancouver, you use the straw, if you throw it into the garbage, presumably it goes into the landfill. It doesn't, the only way a plastic straw or a plastic bag would make its way into the ocean from, from someone using it in Vancouver would be if they physically threw it into the ocean rather than putting it in the garbage. <laughs> which can still happen, of course. Right. Yeah, <laughs> We've seen some interesting in- innovations. Um, there are some bamboo straws available. There are biodegradable straws available. Uh, all these are, are great steps in the right direction. Uh, but if we focus on this, and, and I think most people would agree, it's, it's uh, nobody wants to throw. I think if I saw someone throwing plastic into the ocean, obviously I would take issue with that. That's not uh, what you're supposed to do with it. But but how do we go about solving the problem? If it's not, if it's there's, there's got to be a, a certain point where this stuff is getting into the ocean. I mean, is it from uh, the plants where it's sent for recycling in places instead of being recycled, it's being tossed into the ocean? Like, how is this getting into the ocean in such great uh, quantities? It's sort of like anything that you give someone. Um, you can have the best intentions on its final end use. However, it's completely out of your control, uh, which is why um, stopping the production of the plastic in the first place is a good start. And then secondarily, what Sea Shepherd, uh, something like organizations like Sea Shepherd does is retrieve uh, plastics out of the ocean or do beach cleanups or um, you know, various other initiatives that, that uh, we're currently involved with um, all, all over the world, actually. Uh, one of the, the quotes in the release that was put out about this was uh, a warning uh, from scientists saying that by the year 2050, uh, the amount of plastic in the oceans will be greater than the number of fish. Uh, that seems like, like a, an almost an unbelievable number. Well, yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. But if you think about you know, how many billion people there are on the planet in every single country, coastal country, a lot of countries are polluting the marine environment a lot worse than Canada is. Um, we have a tremendous amount of plastics uh, going into the sea daily through rivers, uh, through uh, storm drains, uh, coastally on beaches, just with high tides. Uh, the, the amount is absolutely staggering. Um, as I mentioned before, we operate eight vessels uh, all over, the, all over the, the Americas right now, and uh, we have vessels in, in Africa and other parts of the world as well. And the amount of marine debris in the form of plastic that we come across is, is quite staggering. And I would imagine, too, that's the stuff that we can see. And you can see a plastic bag. You can see a straw. You don't, what you don't see are perhaps microbeads and these smaller particles that are also causing a lot of harm. Correct. Um, even in the deepest part of the oceans, you have tiny little crustaceans who have um, plastics in their, in their gut, uh, plastics, and they've ingested them at, uh, you know, at inception. It's really tragic. And uh, some of the initiatives that we're doing are going out into the open ocean and retrieving uh, illegal illegal uh, nets, plastic nets that have been floating for for uh, you know sometimes decades, um, and just continually harming marine wildlife as they drift around the seas.
Has it shifted the focus of Sea Shepherd, or maybe not shifted, but or or expanded it a bit? Because I think in the past uh, we've thought of of Sea Shepherd as um, you know anti whaling, as as anti shark finning, and, and initiatives for the direct, perhaps uh, direct attack on sea life. Whereas this one seems like more of an indirect somebody, somebody who uses a plastic bag, like you said, you might have the best intentions and and recycle it, but it's out of your hands once you do that. It's not as though somebody is doing this willfully. Has it has it shifted kind of the focus of your society? We've definitely um, we've definitely engaged in new campaigns that involve plastics. Um, We have a. Uh, one of our main campaigns, Operation Milagro in Mexico, and that, that campaign is purely re- recovering nylon out of the oceans. Um, and we retrieve up to three, four pieces of gear every day, and these are nets that can be several hundred meters long, um, to the point where we've got a compound in, in Mexico that may have up to 20 tons of, of retrieved plastics uh, just laying there, which we are then recycling uh, and, and turning into something else down the line. But, uh, yeah, we've definitely uh, had to start campaigns specifically designed around retrieving plastic out of the ocean and along coastlines. Um, We've got another one called Clean Waves, where we go to remote islands in the Pacific and help with the plastics problems down there. Um, And we do beach cleanups and marine debris campaigns all throughout um, North America. And what kind of a response have you been getting to both this campaign and this call about uh, being more careful or, or or calling for action when it comes to plastics in the oceans? It seems like it's getting a lot of traction. Uh, this particular campaign, the, uh, this awareness campaign that we launched recently uh, regarding uh, animals um, you know, dying of, of plastic strangulation and that sort of thing, it's getting huge traction. I think people are, are aware and becoming more, um, becoming more sensitive to it and realizing that you know, small differences they, they can make in their daily life, um, just, for example, not accepting a plastic bag at a supermarket can make a huge difference down the line. Uh, who's the worst offender? Um, as far as a country, or what exactly do you... Do yeah, you where, where is it? Is it? Can we pinpoint, is there a particular area where, where it's coming from the most? Well, I, I think any country that still produces lots of plastic, lots of single-use um, products, such as styrofoam, that sort of thing, any country that's still doing that is, um, is, uh, is part of the problem. And, uh, and it's up to consumers, it really is. It's up to us to say, hey... Um, Let's use glass jars. Let's use uh, different types of products to carry our food in. Uh, it's not a huge change. It's a slight inconvenience in the beginning, but it's something we can all get used to, and it'll be much better for the oceans down the road. I, I mean, I think back to it was several years ago. I was uh, in Rwanda, and Rwanda has had a ban on plastic bags for decades. And it always struck me that if this uh, small African country can do this, and it's to the point where they check your luggage when you arrive in that country and make sure you're not even bringing them in. I, I've always thought that if this small country can do that, then it seems like it wouldn't be that much of a shift for others to follow suit. Absolutely. It's a small, a small inconvenience just to get used to in the beginning. And uh, it's something we can all do to make a huge change for the oceans. Uh, are there particular areas, like you mentioned, you have several vessels and they're in, in many parts of the world. Are there particular areas of the ocean that you see are harder hit than others? Oh, definitely. You can go, um, you know, you can go west of the North American continent, somewhere between here and Hawaii. Um, and you can start to see where ocean currents are um, sort of churning and, and congregating types of plastics that just sort of stay in, in a loop. Uh, some people call this the garbage patch. Uh, we're actually going out there this summer, uh, sending a vessel out there uh, to retrieve ghost nets, which are giant long lines or giant drift nets that have been abandoned and just churn in a big tide pool, you know, giant, a giant ocean current, and just uh, stay there forever, killing sort of indiscriminately um, 
fish get entangled all the time in these in these uh, drift nets. Uh, what do you rec- when you and you mentioned too when you bring them in, uh, haul them up, but, uh, and recycle them? What do you turn them into? So. Predominantly, these nets are nylon, um, and what we found out, um, having tested some of these nets, is that there are all kinds of different types of nylon, which makes it a little complicated, but uh, there are certain types of nylon which are easily recyclable, and uh, these actually will get turned into yarn. Uh, from there, uh, Sea Shepherd can make clothing, and, uh, and the, the plastic can have a second, a second life. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and again, uh, happy that the connection went through from uh, the remote place where you are today. Uh, people can, can see more of this on the website. Thanks so much for joining us, Lockhart. Great to talk to you this morning. Thanks for having me. Cheers.